Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for tuning in. We've got another great episode for you here on 1 Kings 9 and its historical context and background. So we hope you enjoy this. And as always, we appreciate if you're able to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I know we say that pretty regularly. It, it really is helpful, especially with a new podcast like this one, to help other people find us and learn about what we're doing. So we'd appreciate your help in that. And uh, most of all, we're just grateful that you're listening and hope that it's helpful to you and that it gives you a deeper sense and awareness of the broader biblical world. Thanks so much. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to On Script Biblical World Podcast. Today, uh, I, Chris McKinney, and Kyle Keimer are talking about... Hello. There's Kyle. Uh, are talking about um, one of his more recent papers that he's published in Palestine Exploration Quarterly, a very prestigious and very old uh, journal. Uh, It's been around ever since the uh, 19th century, and he's published on uh, the region of, of, of Galilee and looking at the region of Kabul in 1 Kings chapter 9. Um, with regards to to Solomon, so we're going to talk about his uh, his publication, uh, as well as why he was interested in this topic. And uh, just reading through some of this, there's a number of um, interesting elements, things like etiology and Deuteronomistic history and the annals of the chronicles of the kings of Israel and Judah, and uh, as well as getting into some of these questions about dating and background and what what the role of historical geography is and maybe we can just ask uh kyle what what's the what's the thing that really drew you to this uh to this topic uh and then maybe we can get into the some of the nuts and bolts of it yeah thanks chris yeah the thing that really drew me to this was um you know i was i was trying to prepare a dissertation proposal dissertation idea and I wanted to do something with fortifications. And so I was looking at all you know, the archaeological reports, fortified sites, and passages in, in the text, and came across the site of Horat Rosh Zayat, which is identified uh, today generally as, as the biblical site of Kabul. And you just got really fascinated in this site. And so it led me to looking a bit more at where this shows up in the text and you know what its, its role is. And because you have this really interesting combination of Israelite type pottery, if you will, from the the early Iron Age too, but you also have a ton of Phoenician pottery at the same time, and so you're looking at some sort of border type site, perhaps, and the interest kind of grew from there. And then, as I looked at it from a, one of the other one of my other big interests is military, um, you know, strategy, um, tactics. And so I started focusing really on this site and thinking about it. And then I had the opportunity one year while I was over in Israel, eventually got to the site and found it. It's kind of in the midst of a forest right off the edge of the road today and was really just fascinated with it and the strategic potential of this site. And 
And as I was looking at it, you know, I, the passage in First Kings 9 really kind of stood out as here's this little three-verse passage that you could easily gloss over. And it's this, this correspondence between Hiram, king of Tyre, and Solomon. And it talks about the kind of cities of Kabul. And yeah, I kind of went from there. And the more I looked at it, I was like, oh, there's actually a lot we could draw out of these few verses when we look at the historical geographic context, when we layer on military concerns, even when we start to layer on economic concerns. And so it kind of built and built and built from there, went through a number of permutations and and voila, there it is. Yeah, it's always fun to kind of get to, to get behind the scenes of a research project and, you know, where these things start and how they, how they go. I mean, sometimes uh, if it's a paper, it'll just strike you as you're reading something else. And that's usually for me the way it is. And I'm studying on a specific topic that I already have planned and then come across something that I hadn't thought of before. And it just kind of develops and snowballs uh, from there. And it's just always interesting the way research and these discoveries that you have develop. And I actually think that's that's one of my favorite parts about being a, a, a scholar associated with Bible and archaeology is just trying to figure out these things and, and be always being surprised by things that people you haven't, haven't thought about before or perhaps were just not noticed. Uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we read the, the passage? Um, I'm going to read it. I got my accordance on my screen. Uh, and those of you who have not used accordance, you should. It's a fantastic... You mean you don't have it memorized? I, I don't Nick. have it memorized. Well, I do. Uh, I do, but it's, it, I have it memorized in Hebrew, so I'm going to read it in the ESV. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to read That's it. Fine, I'm going to yeah. read the English translation. <laughs> um, so it, it goes like this. At the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord or the house of Yahweh, and the king's house, and just a, a brief comment here, if you want to go back and read those, you can in First Kings uh, chapter 6 and so on, where we have the house of Yahweh taking seven years and the house of Solomon uh, 13 years. And so this is detailed in great depth um, over the course of the opening chapters of the book of Kings. And so it's saying, after all this is over, Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired. Uh, and of course, the connection there with cedars and cypress is because of Tyre's close proximity to the Lebanon, um, which is actually the mountain range, not the name of the country. Um, Tyre was a, was a city-state kingdom, and it had access to these, these mountain ranges. Um, and it says, King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Uh, but when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore, he said, what kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. First Kings 9, uh, uh, 10 through 14. Now, one of the, one of the real questions or one of the real uh, important elements of this um, of this section of scripture, which is famous because not so much because of what Kyle wrote on, although maybe it'll be famous after he wrote on it, um, but what, what follows it is something that has really, you might call exhibit A of the uh, high chronology versus low chronology, maximalist versus minimalist divide, because if you go to the next verse, you of course find the references to 
uh, the the building of the walls of Megiddo and Gezer and uh, Hatsor. Um, but this actually precedes that, and it deals with this uh, this negotiation uh, between between uh, Hiram and uh, and Solomon, and trying to come up with repayment. And there's all kinds of questions about the historicity, of course, of Solomon. There's also questions about the historicity of, of Hiram and uh, where is this gold coming from? Where is the, the silver coming from? Um, is this historical? Is this not historical? Um, and one of the interesting things that has uh, developed over the last uh, decade or so is it turns out that there's a number of uh, silver hordes that, ex- that are, have been found in Israel um, and they're actually able to trace where the, the silver was first mined. Um, and it's been shown that, that these hordes that exist in the, in the 10th and the 9th century from such places as Teldor, that they actually originated uh, in Sardinia, off the island of Sardinia, and were, were brought through ship um, to, the land, uh, to the land of Israel. Uh, why that's so significant is because, historically speaking, um, the sources associated with uh, Tyre and the founding of such places as Carthage um, only really date to at the earliest, the late ninth century, which means that we have um, kind of this proto-history uh, in the 10th century where we're, where we're seeing Phoenicians from places like Tyre and Sidon going across the Mediterranean for its mineral resources and bringing it back to Phoenicia, but also trading with other parts of, uh, of the Levant. Um, now, we can't archaeologically put the put those things together unless we find this, let's say, in Jerusalem or other parts, and they're well dated to the 10th century. But let's just say that it's pretty clear now that um, the Phoenicians were, um, were traveling the Mediterranean as early as the, the 10th century, and were um, bringing back silver um, and probably other minerals, including gold, to to the um, to, to their to their own homeland and, and depositing it at such places as Teldor, which seems to fit very nicely. And so the backdrop to to Kyle's argument um, is is has been not confirmed historically, but we have enough evidence to say that this is a legitimate thing. The Phoenician kings were doing this in the 10th century. And so uh, once we get into the question of repayment, it becomes really interesting. Now, Kyle, we, we talk about, in your, in, your, uh, in your paper, you talk about a, a number of different things uh, associated with the date of the, of the text. What are some aspects uh, associated with the, um, the dating of the Book of Kings, and specifically a term like Deuteronomistic history? How does that play a role in this discussion. What is the Deuteronomist? Who is the Deuteronomist? What is the Deuteronomistic history? Uh, maybe those are why some, is the Deuteronomist? Why? <laughs> How? How is the, what's the, uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy here with, uh, what's his name? Um, <laughs> who, how is Gamora? Um, uh, but can you, can you give us some insight into the, the, the role of the Deuteronomistic history in this, in this passage? Yeah, the um, so the I guess to start with the who is or what is the Deuteronomistic history just rolls off the tongue there. You know, there's amongst biblical scholars, you know, one of the, the goals that is there is to identify layers, potential layers within the biblical text, and to 
kind of get back to the earliest possible sources, the earliest possible version. And so over the last you know 250 years or so, scholars have really analyzed the the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and pointed out uh, what could be considered seams in some regard, or perhaps even different sources. Uh, due to difference uh, in vocabulary, uh, phraseology, and there is the idea that, you know, particularly the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Bible, were comprised of a number of different sources. And the, you know, the original, um, well, the most well-known, I should say it's not the original, but it's the most well-known manifestation of this is the documentary Hypothesis by Julius Wellhausen, when he has his four sources, J, E, D, and P, and he breaks down the the Pentateuch into these four different sources, and now, uh, you know, so J is the Yahwist, that's that is he refers to the God of Israel by the name of Yahweh. E is the Elohist, he chooses to refer to God as the more generic Elohim. Then you've got the D, the Deuteronomist, who uses a language that is very particular to the Book of Deuteronomy, and then you have P, which is the priestly source, and they're the one who's concerned with you know all things priestly, the Book of Leviticus, things that most normal people you know gloss over. Let's, let's shall we say, uh, and so it's this this specific language in Deuteronomy, though, that really lends to the idea that there is um, a specific source, whether or not it's one or more or a school of authors, you know, that can be debated, but it continues then. There's a lot of similarity between Deuteronomy into the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel to a certain degree, and then Kings as well. And so, you know, this big block of biblical books has been has come to be known as the Deuteronomistic history. That is, a version of Israel's history that has been influenced, um, redacted, or even written by the so-called Deuteronomistic school or Deuteronomist. Um, and so that's kind of in a nutshell what, what we're dealing with here. And there are debates as to how old the earliest version of these stories are. That, and by how old, I mean, you know, the earliest time they were written down. Uh, and then there's the next question of, well, when was it updated? Because it's clear that the, this the text, uh, and, and not only in the, the Deuteronomistic history, but uh, in other portions of the, the Hebrew Bible, that there are updates. In the same way we would you know, add a parenthetical statement, you see this in, in Hebrew, and one of the, the clearest examples is always when they update the name of a site. So they go to Kiryat Arba, parentheses, that is Hebron. Well, why? That's clearly, you know, a later edition, probably going back from an earlier source, whereas the original t name of the town was Kiryat Arba, but the author is saying, oh, it's not known by that name anymore, so I'm going to just add in, that's, we call it Hebron today, so that my audience knows, you know, what, what I'm talking about. And so one of the goals then is to differentiate these these layers and say, okay, what was perhaps original? When was it original? And what are the later additions to it? And when we get to the period of Solomon in particular, right, we've moved into the book of, of First Kings, very, you know, he, obvious Solomon shows up in Second Samuel, he's born there. And, and then, you know, the narrative of the first 11 chapters of First Kings is focused on, on Solomon. You get some really interesting and, and complex literary uh, developments taking place there, and in a way that you don't necessarily see um, in the discussion of the reign of his father in the book of Samuel and even of Saul. And so, you know, the the nature of the sources perhaps is a slightly different as we move into Kings. Part of this probably being because you know there maybe there are different sources, but we also. 
that, well, there's a number of issues, and so I'm just trying to, to figure out which ones we should you know, focus on. You know, so there's the literary aspect of when is the text written, why is it written, by whom is it written, and when is it updated. And so to just focus on that issue for a second, you know, a lot of scholars, well, some scholars, again, depending on who you talk to, will say that an early version of this history of Israel was composed already in the days of Hezekiah in the 8th century, and it was drawing on earlier court records, court documents, and then someone came together and wrote this this narrative and kind of blended together oral traditions, if you will, written documentation, perhaps other sources, and boom, you've got the early version of what we know then to be, you know, this Deuteronomic, Deuteronomistic history. Many scholars then say, you know, you have a second version or or a first version in the days of Josiah as well. And this is tied to the whole discussion of the, the discovery of the law in, at the end of 2 Kings. Other scholars say then, um, you know, actually there's a third redaction or perhaps, you know, even a third um, you know, large composition in the exilic or post-exilic period. And so, you know, again, we're not working with any original documents, so it's very difficult to parcel it out. But what we need to look at are the, the specific details in the text and see if they give us any clues as to, well, when, when is this story set, kind of historically speaking? Can we, can we determine that? What details can we corroborate kind of externally with other ancient or Eastern sources to give us any pinpoint for, for when a story might, might be reflective, even if it has undergone later, later um, revisions, later, later changes? And you know, this was one of the things that I, I love doing with this passage is that you know, there's a huge question about, yeah, as you mentioned already, Chris, whether or not this passage is a historical reality or it's a fictive creation, whether or not it should date to the 10th century, maybe the 8th century, maybe it's just made up and they, you know, later on. And that all ties into as well this bigger issue of looking at Phoenician sources. And we don't have any original Phoenician sources either. We have to, you know, we're reliant largely on Josephus from the first century AD, drawing upon later classical sources that perhaps were using original Phoenician sources. And so whether or not we can accept everything that he says is a, is a big question. And so it's trying to get back though, dealing with the resources we have, trying to unpack the layers and figure out, okay, can we map this on to anything we know with ancient Near Eastern sources? Can we map it on to what we're seeing in the archeology? span and then what I really wanted to do with this is, well, you know, the layer that nobody was really talking about is the geography. Can we do something new and interesting if we layer on the actual, you know, geographic context of this passage? Yeah, that's 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 really good. And and I think you laid out the the case for sources and just kind of the, the state of scholarship where it is on this question really well. I would just add just a a couple of things uh, about this just as clarification. One, when we, when we approach the Book of Kings. It's clear that the book includes um, a, kind of a, a closing date because we learn that Jehoiachin, the one of the latter kind of crummy kings of Judah, he's exiled, and it says, I believe, in the twenty-sixth year, the exact year of his uh, of his exile, he is brought out of prison, and so that date is essentially by, dated by most scholars to about five sixty-two B.C which means that's the earliest possible uh, editing, last editing of the book of, of, of Kings. And so to Kyle's point is, is that you, that means that whatever the book's um, earlier sources, that's the point that you can talk about as being the last time that, it, that it's edited. But 
what's really interesting is like when we have the case of Hezekiah, you have material from Isaiah in there. You have three whole chapters uh, from Isaiah, which most scholars consider to be uh, well dated to, or at least part of Isaiah, uh, to the eighth century. Um, and but then you also have this material from uh, from Solomon, which, which which we're discussing now. Another element to this, just as as way of of clarification, the Book of Chronicles essentially uses Kings and Samuel as its primary source for telling its narrative. Um, now, it may have other sources. It may um, also, and seems to, uh, to, tell its story in its own way uh, with, with, you know, skipping over things like David's infidelity and, and, and things of that nature. But just as a way of thinking about it from a source angle, the, the Book of Chronicles mainly uses the narrative of canonical kings and Samuel, or at least the, the version that existed then. Um, and then the third thing I wanted to add is I, I love this question about Josephus and the dates of the Tyrian kings. And if you haven't read this, I'd really recommend doing it. It's fun. It's in, uh, it's not in Antiquities or in uh, the War of the Jews. It's actually in his famous, um, one, of his, one of his smaller books, but one of our famous books against Apion, where he cites all of these different details uh, from other authors. And he's actually our only source for most of this stuff where he brings in stuff that is three centuries old by his day. And at least from what I've seen and studied this pretty closely, I would say that there's a pretty good correspondence between what we read in what's called the Tyrian King List uh, that Josephus relays through a couple of different classical authors that he knew and what we find archaeologically because we see them uh, synchronizing quite well with um, kings in the days of Ahab. Uh, we have various inscriptions, particularly in the later periods, uh, that, that line up well, which, which seems to point to a, a relative consistency where Hiram would have been a king in the mid to early 10th century, which would align well with um, the days of Solomon. And so, again, we can't say with absolute certainty it's a much later source, but there's a lot of um, there, there's a lot of nice synchronizing that you can do uh, that that seems to fit that seems to fit this evidence. Now, before we get into the geography, which I know we're both wanting to to do, uh, maybe we'll just maybe I could ask you a couple of things. Um, what is uh, an etiology, and uh, what role does something like the phrase to this day play into this questions of etiology and the date? How how, how do those works? Uh, how do those things work? Yeah, an etiology is uh, basically it's a, a story that explains why something is or where something came from, perhaps a specific name, you know, why something is called this or that. One of the, the best um, examples that I, I you know, would use in class is the story of the kind of serpent in the Epic of Gilgamesh where Gilgamesh is off on this journey to reach immortality and eventually, you know, kind of uh, overcomes all odds and meets up with, you know, the kind of Babylonian Noah, as many people call him, Utnapishtim. And, and he's like, how did you, you know, what is the secret to, to everlasting life? And he says, well, nobody can reach it, but here's a little secret. There's a plant that grows at the bottom of the ocean. And if you get it, and you, you'll you be able to regenerate and you'll be able to, to be young again. So, you know, Gilgamesh not to 
not one to shy away from, you know, killing anything or doing anything grand and adventurous, goes off, finds this plant, but he's so exhausted um, from the, you know, the retrieving of it that he lies down, falls asleep in his boat with his plant. And wouldn't you know it, that pesky old serpent who shows up in so many uh, ancient Near Eastern things comes onto the boat, eats the plant while he's asleep, and sheds his skin because he became new. So this is an etiology. Did, did a serpent actually come up there and eat it and become new? Well, no, but it explains why uh, a snake sheds its skin, at least as the, as the ancient audience understood it. Uh, and again, they're, they're trying to make sense of this. So these, these stories help them to make sense of why something is the way it is. And we, the, the etiology in this particular case in First Kings is this name Kabul and Hiram coming and, you know, it's attributed to him that the, a region known to the biblical author as Kabul goes back to this correspondence between Hiram and Solomon, and it comes from a statement made by Hiram. So it explains where a specific geographical name came from. Now, the, the interesting thing in this passage is that it goes on and says, and this is, you know, it's known as this um, name to this day. And um, this is a pass or a phrase that we get in the biblical text on a number of occasions, you know, until this day. And it's a, a marker that, uh, viewed by many scholars, it's a marker that a source is late because, you know, here you have the author basically sometimes fabricating a story to explain something. Perhaps he's drawing upon an original uh, document, but the point is that the text as he's writing it is late because he's letting you know that with this phrase. He's saying, oh, you know, in my day, right, we know it as this. It goes back to, you know, good old, the, the days of yore. I don't know where it came from, right? But, but now in my day, it's still known as this. And oftentimes this is taken as a phrase that something is being fabricated. And so I, I delved into you know, a discussion of this particular phrase, and, and actually turns out that when you look at the the way it's used in the Bible, it it can um, there can be a lack of historical reality, um, not you know not for any particular malicious reason, but that's just because maybe sources didn't exist. But by and large, the most majority, there's no inherent claim one way or the other to whether or not something is historical or, or, or ahistorical with the use of this frame. And so, on the one hand, scholarship, I think, has developed a framework that, you know, when you see this phrase, you're going to find something that's kind of made up. And that actually isn't, isn't necessarily the case, and it really needs to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. And so, what I, what I argue in the paper and what I, you know, as I was thinking about it is, well, the, we actually need to turn it a bit on its head because the author is giving us a clue, not necessarily that the source that we have in front of us is late, but we need to think about the sources the author is using or the traditions the author is drawing upon. And if anything, the fact that he's using this phrase until his days tells us that those sources are actually earlier, that they already exist and have existed for X number of years or X number of generations. You know, we don't, we don't know precisely, but the, the secret is those are already well-known and well-established and they're, they're commonplace for this author later on. The other aspect that gets worked into this whole discussion is that oftentimes the use of this phrase is done for very specific reasons to make an additional point in the text from a, from a kind of narratological perspective. So it's not just 
Yeah, it's not a chronological issue per se for the, the biblical authors, but it's one of kind of ideology or part of the bigger narrative. They want to draw your attention to something very specific because it has a significance in some way that they want, you know, they really want to draw out. And so the ancient audience would have been, would have known this kind of technique in a way that perhaps is lost on us as, as time has gone on. Yeah, I think that's a, this is a really good explanation. And it, it kind of reminds me of something that I'm always fascinated by, and that is, as scholars of the Deuteronomistic history or whatever uh, you know, section of scripture associated with, with narrative, like the Pentateuch, or you know, trying to get to the original sources and that type of thing, we're often asking these questions. But particularly in um, this area, I always like to just think of the stories as they're told by the ancient Israelites and Judahites themselves. And so thinking about this story, if you lived at Megiddo or you lived somewhere in the Jezreel Valley, let's say in the eighth century or the ninth century or whatever it is, after, after Solomon, let's say for the sake of argument that this actually happened and it's historic and everything, every time they pass through it, they think Kabul and they think what happened? Oh yeah, that was the trade that was made between Hiram and Solomon. And it's this story that essentially, when you really think about it, is the Bible to the people living in the land of the Bible, that the, 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 the role of land, place, and especially place name and its landscapes around it is the authoritative tradition that would have, been, would have gone on during the time of the biblical period itself, as well as afterwards, as we find people coming back to the land, telling the stories once more, perhaps uh, it's in some cases codifying them into what we now have in the Bible. And so I think most people don't think of it that way, of actually when you're in like Beit Shemesh and you're passing Beit Shemesh and, and someone living there in, in the same time period and they're thinking about, you know, the ark came there and, um, and then it made its way to Jerusalem. Well, just like we go to Jerusalem to worship at different times, we can travel along what the ark did. And, and so it has this real um, physical uh, element to it where the land itself and the absence of the Gutenberg printing press uh, or today uh, having whatever translation you want in your iPhone as you travel from place to place, these traditions which are alive and they themselves, you might say, are, are you know, part of the authorship or part of the reception history of those stories. Uh, I, I just think that's a fun thing to think about. And, and again, if we're always interested in trying to get to the original audience and the original author, we need to think about that part of it more uh, because that's where these these stories to this day, the etiologies, the the land itself and the landscape, that's where they start to really, I think, flesh out to eventually become what we have in uh, the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, yeah. Those I think those are all really great, great points, Chris. And I, you know, just one thing I'll I'll kind of add, uh, kind of compliment and just reiterate a point you made. It, it is that living tradition. Again, you know, ancient Israel is not a largely literate society, but you you create stories, you tell stories, and it's a very powerful medium by which realities of your experience and the world around you can be conveyed and so yeah i, I think that you know what you said is, is spot on and we really need to be thinking about this um in our investigation of of the biblical text and details that are there even if even if the details aren't 
100% right, so to speak, in a kind of modern 21st Western perception of right and wrong, they're there because they are have a specific place in the story and in the worldview. Yeah, and, and, and that's absolutely right. And, and I think it just gets lost in the question of, is it historical or not historical? Like, that's a valid question. It's an important one, and it's an important one to get into sources and source criticisms. But where it kind of like the rubber meets the road of interpreting and consuming and receiving um, biblical texts or really any ancient text is is what's its what's its history of reception and for the for when it was written and for mostly when it was read and authoritative to that to that to that world we kind of just ignore it. Um, and the way to get back to that is to think along those lines and also to actually understand the geographical world and landscapes and cultures in which the ancient Israelites and Judites and Phoenicians, as well as others, found themselves. And the way we do that, of course, is through archaeology and through great papers like Kyle wrote. So tell me now about the, uh, geo the geography and the geology of Galilee and how uh, the region of Kabul uh, fits into this. And we're going to place a link in the uh, description, which has Kyle's um, article and has some great maps from uh, from our, our good friends. Uh, already published in the article, Biblical Backgrounds. He's got a, a number of really nice visuals in here showing exactly where it is, giving you some oblique views. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful region. So tell us a little bit about the, again, the, the region of uh, of Galilee that we find it, you know, kind of the region of Asher and what's kind of going on in the background from a geographical perspective. Yeah. Well, the way to really kind of conceptualize it, big, big picture, and then we'll whittle it down a bit, is, you know, the region of Galilee or the Galilee is in the Hebrew, most of these, you know, regions that we know just as a proper name always have the, the definite article, like the Lebanon, the Galilee. You've got Upper Galilee and you've got Lower Galilee. And then you've got the kind of Hula Basin to the east of, of that, which then descends down into the, um, the Sea of Galilee region. And just to the east of that, you have uh, the Golan Heights rising back up. And this is the, the, the big picture is because you've got two major tectonic plates slamming, that have slammed together and are sliding um, you know, against each other at this point, which is where we get the, the Lebanon, anti-Lebanon mountains and all the Maktashim and other uh, Negev highlands further south. And because of this technology, actually, it's the, the Galilee in general is just this massively faulted region. So it's a very rugged region, but it has some really beautiful pockets of open area and really fertile soil because portions of it um, either are coming from a, a hard limestone called Cenomanian, which turns into a really nice, dense soil called Terra Rosa. The eastern lower Galilee is covered with basalt, so, you know, volcanic hot liquid magma flowed over it at one point in eons ago and dried and now is deteriorated into a really nice, rich soil. But then lower Galilee in the west, um, you have a a, a softer, crumblier type of limestone, which is a couple of kinds called Eocene or Cenomanian. And these don't produce as good of soil as they erode. But in between the, the actual rocks themselves, you have a number of kind of parallel valleys in Lower Galilee. And just to the south, you've got the Jezreel Valley. So, you know, there's this famous passage in Josephus that he, um, he says, you know, the Galilee is 
of such a nature that even the laziest of people are motivated to come here and be farmers because all you got to do is throw the seed in and boom, you've got, you know, you, you, everything's there. And that's not only because of the nature of the soil and the, the topography, but also because the Galilee is very well watered. You get a lot of rain up there. Uh, and this is something as you move further south, it dissipates. And so, you know, the northern part of Israel, Lebanon, Syria today is very well watered, which again, people who've never been there or just see the movies think, ah, oh, it's all flat desert. No, it's, it's not. Galilee is very lush, very green, lots of uh, water. You've also got the headwaters of the Jordan, you know, kind of popping up from the uh, the Lebanese mountains and flowing through the Hula Basin and then making the Sea of Galilee. And so you've got all these, the, the natural topography, but each one has its own character. So Upper Galilee literally is higher in elevation than Lower Galilee. It's like a giant plug just got pushed up a bit. And then as you move south into Lower Galilee, it's fragmented by these east-west valleys. And then as you move further south, you get the, the wide open Jezreel um, Valley. And so this is a region though that needed to be, or I should say, you know, people wanted to, tr to cross. And, and this is one of the big questions that I put out there. And this is a question that my kind of, um, you know, teacher, uh, Jim Monson, who, you know, founded Biblical Backgrounds, really put in my mind. He's like, why do people go where they go and how do they get there? And the other question is, why don't they go other places? And this was something I thought very hard of one, one day in Jordan when we were driving down the so-called Namala Ascent, the Ascent of the Ants. And it was, I mean, you'd have to be an ant to go up, like a, I mean, a giant ant, but you'd have to be an ant to do this because it was, it was rugged and there was no possible way. But, you know, Bedouin figured out they were driving trucks up and down it over this. And so, but why would they do that? Well, you know, there has to be a certain convenience. And I like to tell my students, you know, it's not about, you know, finding the easiest route in antiquity to get from point A to point B, but oftentimes it's finding the least difficult route to get there. And so this is, a, I think all of these are really important questions for understanding the Galilee because it is this really fragmented geological entity that, okay, why do you even want to go there? And if you don't want to go there, why do you want to go across it? And then how do you go across it? Yeah, yeah, I think those are some, some, some excellent points. In fact, I would just add that one of the problems, you mentioned water there, one of the problems in Galilee is often too much water. I mean, you have with the, the Hula Basin and the Jezreel Valley and other parts where it wasn't until modern times that they were able to drain them sufficiently to where you could have um, major occupation. You had issues with mosquitoes and malaria. And, and so it's, it's very different than what um, is normally depicted in, in, in films. Uh, and normally, you know, people think of the caricature of the, the desert when they think of Israel. The Jezreel Valley, Galilee is, is very much the, uh, the opposite of that. Um, and the other thing I would just add also is one of our difficulties in modern day, and I, and I feel I, I find myself always doing this, is we can't think beyond the modern national borders that exist. And what I mean by that is, and at least in this case, is Israel and Lebanon, you know, the countries of Israel and Lebanon, the Galilee itself, uh, we often immediately just think of, of the Sea of Galilee and, and, and the northern part of Israel, but it actually extends to a great extent into, um, into southern Lebanon um, and bumps up against the, uh, Lebanese, um, the Lebanese range as well as taking you over towards the major 
the major cities, uh, such as Tyre and Sidon and so on, that are to the northwest of that. And so uh, in some ways you can, it's helpful because this has always kind of been a border zone between um, the, the su- this is really where we also get, you might say, the border between so- Southern Levant and Northern Levant or Northern Canaan and Southern Canaan. And it seems to have always been that the, that was the case, that uh, South uh, in the area of Galilee goes further, um, or uh, sometimes it's pulled towards the North. And so the question is, which way is it going to be? Uh, which way is it going to be pulled? Um, and depending on the political factors involved with all of that, but the area that we're looking at um, that Kyle that Kyle talked about is in this area on the western side, uh, the, the the plain of uh, the plain of Asher. It's also sometimes called the plain of Akko. It's actually one of my favorite places to visit in all of uh, in all of Israel. Uh, unfortunately, besides this, there's not very many biblical stories associated with it. Um, and so most, it, it's kind of off the beaten path. Um, but in, in ancient times, it had uh, the second river in all of Israel running through it. You know, it has the, the Kishon River, which drains the area of the Jezreel Valley. Um, it's just absolutely packed with tells. I mean, there are ancient sites everywhere all along the plain of Asher, plain of Akko. It's a very beautiful climate, um, you know, close to, close to uh, Lebanon. Uh, you have on the northern side the uh, mountain range of Rosh HaNikra. You know, it talks about these white cliffs that you can still visit today and uh, see where there was a tunnel dug out there in the, in the modern period. Um, and all of this is actually pretty well described in the book of Joshua. It talks about 20 or so I think it's 22 uh, cities of the plain of Asher and describes this whole thing essentially between Mount Carmel and Rosh Hanikra, this, this beautiful plain. And the area of Kabul seems to sit on the kind of the southeast corner, just on the edge of the, the hills of the, the, plain of the plain of Asher. And the, with all that, we can ask the question, what was Hiram complaining about? It's pretty nice. Uh, what What is it that he doesn't like about these? Or maybe is that just part of this whole question? Yeah, no, that's that's one of the, the key questions because you look at it and you say, oh yeah, this is nice. And you can go up to the region around Cabri and get you know all the avocados you want today. And um, But, you know, when I looked a bit closer and, and looked um, at the... The, the topography of this kind of Akko plain and then also the, the mountains, you know. Uh, so just to come back, we'll make one quick point about, you know, the natural border between uh, of the northern end of Galilee is really the Latani River Basin, and that's in southern Lebanon. So you're right, you know, we, we tend to think about modern borders, but those really, you know, rarely actually tie in with ancient borders or even the geographical reality of the land that is a natural um, way that they conceptualize their space there. But basically from the Latani um, basin, you go rise up into Upper Galilee and drop out. You've got this giant mountain ridge and then it dips down. Sometimes the mountains are going straight down into the, the Mediterranean on the east. And so what's Tyre? Well, Tyre is an island, right? You've got this mainland settlement as well that goes with it, but it's the main site is, is an island off the, off the shore. And how do you get all of your supplies to an island, right? We have this idea that Tyre is just this dominant 
force in the universe in you know the Iron Age, and they they do become that certainly by you know later in the Iron Age, and we've got the passage in Ezekiel that talks about all the trade flowing through there, and there's good reasons to think that this started as Chris mentioned already earlier on in the in the Iron Age as well. But having seaborne trade is one thing. Having a stable economy and food source is another thing. And the nature of the topography around Tyre is such that you don't really have much of a hinterland because of the way the mountains of Galilee flow down really close to the sea. You've got a narrow coast. And so probably Tyre is looking to expand to the south, whereas the further south you come, it expands a bit, but it's really only south of the Roshanikra Ridge that you, you get more of an actual plain. Um, and then as you move further south, uh, south of Akko, even though you have this beautiful plain, which uh, which is there, you know, portions of it in antiquity just wouldn't have been um, habitable because not only is the Kishon flowing out, and so you'd have to cross that, but it can bring some flooding. But then you also have a second river called the Naaman River that flows and is diverted by some small sandstone ridges. And so this led to actually a, a decent amount of swamping forming south of the site of, of Akko. And so the very southern portion of this, this plain antiquity, you know, you, you certainly encountered some swamps and even even up on the mainland around Tyre they've done some paleogeographic uh, or paleo um, studied the ancient landform there we go whatever that term is and it That's was quite swampy one. there too yeah yeah there you <laughs> go and it was swampy there too and so Tyre really has no major hinterland where they can grow crops that in a in a um, sustainable or even predictable manner so even though you know here they are in Galilee, where there's tons and tons and tons of water. They don't necessarily have the greatest ability to grow crops, particularly if they if they get a, a population of any sort. And we don't know much of anything about the density of, of the island of Tyre. I mean, it can't be that many people. But as it became more and more powerful, the the, the mainland settlements certainly certainly grew. So where is all the food coming from that these people need? And you know, this this led to my, my thinking of, oh, well, yeah, that is a good question, because you've got all these huge valleys in Lower Galilee, you've got the Jezreel Valley, but, you know, those are blocked by the western hills of Lower Galilee and this so-called Alunim Ridge, which forms a bit of a funnel and causes uh, the, the Kishon stream to, you know, it goes through the, the opening between the Alunim Hills and the Carmel range. So it forms a natural border in, in some regards, like the natural topography between the coast and these beautiful lush valleys in, in the Galilee. Yeah, I, I think that's, you did a nice job just describing the, the vicinity. And it made me think of something I always like to do when I'm with, with, a, with a group. Um, and I usually do it at Caesarea as you're first kind of getting a glimpse of the area that the Phoenicians and, and people would have, I like to climb to the top of the, the theater and kind of look over. And, and there, of course, you're going to want to talk about Herod uh, Agrippa dying, as we have in Acts 12. But embedded into that story is something that demonstrates exactly what you're talking about. And this is Acts chapter 12, verse 20. It says, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. In other words, all the way down to 44 AD, when this text is uh, associated with, because this is when Agrippa uh, dies, 
we know that Tyre and Sidon still had to rely on uh, on Judea, Samaria, and so on for its for its food. Uh, and th- in this case, it's an imperial context where Rome is perhaps dictating uh, you know, some of these trade agreements that were still probably worked out on the ground by these uh, by these different officials. But essentially, it's the same thing we have described in this text in 1 Kings uh, chapter 9. It's also the same thing that we can probably infer from such passages with Ahab and Jezebel, why we have uh, a trade agreement or an alliance that is made between Sidon on the one hand with Jezebel and, and her father Ethbaal and Ahab. What's part of that? Well, the Bible doesn't really give us that information, but given this other um, these other texts and what Kyle has just described in terms of the agricultural hinterland that is really absent for uh, the Phoenician city-states and how this would have worked over time, it helps us really understand why there were some of these natural partners between something like Tyre and Israel, or if the tide turns, let's say in the, the ninth century, and Israel kind of doesn't even have control of its own stuff. So maybe uh, some something like Tyre and Sidon might be more inclined to team up with uh, Aram Damascus. Um, or maybe it's just going to branch out and make these other alliances. And maybe that kind of weight of burden when they're under the Assyrian um, uh, control is part of the impulse for why they would want to again and again join these various rebellions. Uh, so it's it's the agricultural aspect, which is especially associated with climate, hydrology, topography. All of those things are major dictating points for history, regardless if we're talking about right now. Uh, and by the way, I think it was in the horrible explosion that happened in Beirut. I think it was associated with a big, uh, there was much grain that was destroyed in it. So, I mean, you have kind of this modern modern thing all the way to the time of the New Testament and then going back to um, what we just read in Solomon. And so it's this dynamic of how will you actually eat? You have, uh, um, as Ezekiel 27 says, is you, you have the paths through the hearts of the sea and all these wonderful trade partners. But if you can trade ivory and you can trade ebony and you can trade... Um, all the wonderful things from the East, incense and so on, uh, and reaching the entire Mediterranean world. But if, if you're not able to uh, sustain your population um, next to Tyre and Sidon, you're not going to be able to make it work. And so um, this is part of the behind the scenes to the question and, and where geography, as well as a knowledge of, of how the geography and the background of the geography plays a role in history can really help us understand this text. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just add two things. Um, you know, we, we have this explicit reference in first uh, Kings and even in second Samuel, when David originally has an agreement with Hiram, right? He's, he's getting cedars and, uh, and other, you know, supplies, but he's giving them food. And then um, what does Hiram want from Solomon? He wants as much food as he'll give him. Why? Well, because they need food, because they, they want food, that stable thing. And so, you know, many scholars look at the relationship between Tyre and Israel and say, oh, you know, Tyre, we, we have this problem. I'll say it this way. We have this problem of always focusing on the bright, shiny things, you know, the fancy, um, you know, 
high quality trade items that are coming in or going through Tire. And so we imply that, or we infer then that Tire is the dominant partner in any relationship because they're the central hub of trade. Well, okay, that's one way to think about it. But when we dig beneath the surface, yeah, what are they eating? That, that's the other, it's these more mundane type of things though that really drive the reality. And you know, a king can have all the people in the world supporting him, but if those people don't have food, they're gonna be dead. The king won't have anyone to support him. So what's one of his duties? Well, he should ensure that his people have food. And so it's a very mundane thing, kind of archeologically, historically speaking, it's not you know, exciting and you know, drawing the attention, but it's the you know, really foundational element that is is coming through i think in particularly this text here that you know the reality is yes tire might be very powerful trading high quality goods but they are in no way the senior partner in an agreement with with israel because israel has basically the ability to cut them off from number one massive supplies of grain and food but also they can cut them off from trade coming from the east from the south you know the Jezreel Valley and this this region of Lower Galilee. We have to remember is a, a trade nexus. It not only is it east-west trade coming from Arabia um, up to the Mediterranean, but it's also north-south coming from Egypt, going all the way up to Aram and then around to Mesopotamia and vice versa. All of this is going right through Galilee, which is why it's kind of known as Galilee of the nations to a certain degree because everyone it becomes a melting pot later on. And you, you see this um, in the New Testament period in particular. I mean, it goes from Isaiah already in the, the eighth century, but then it's picked up again in the New Testament with the idea of Galilee of the nations. It's this melting pot and whoever controls this, this crossroads of trade is the one who's in control. And you know, we could cite any number of resources. Thutmose the third, when he comes, he takes Megiddo. He says the taking of a thousand cities. Well, why? Well, number one, he takes over this coalition of Canaanite and, and Hurrian uh, enemies. But by taking Megiddo, you open up the control of this crossroads because Megiddo is situated just south of a ridge that goes across a small ridge that goes across the Jezreel Valley, and it's basically the only place that doesn't get swampy and wet year round. And so you control Megiddo, you control all the trade all year round, you make money and people are happy. So there is this very real you know, component then when we think about the political situation and say, you know, oh yeah, Tyre, very good at trading important things. That's not all there is to the picture. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really, really helpful. Um, and, and also just a riff, off of your, your points, and, and I'll try to make this brief because we also want to talk about the archaeology, but thinking about the smaller kingdoms, uh, and we're thinking mainly about the Iron Age, but you could say the same thing for the Bronze Age as, they, as their city-states that are under, in the late Bronze Age under the Egyptian domination or before in the Middle Bronze Age when they're, when they're independent, um, they're never an empire. <laughs> like, they're just, they, they, they can't become an empire because they all have different pieces of what is required to sustain an empire. Um, along the coast, you have these ports. Along the central uh, the hinterlands, you have good agricultural areas. And of course, there's trade um, across in the, in the Arabian desert. But, but none of it is, is enough to, to, to result in the type of empires that we see develop in places like Egypt, along the Nile with great cities in Mesopotamia, whether we're talking about the Assyrians or the Babylonians, they have a base that's so powerful and so stable um, that they can 
branch out from. And even with that, throughout various times in history, weren't always able to establish uh, an empire. And so when we think about, um, even when we talk about Solomon, and and that's why I think even just the terminology empire is so problematic, because an empire (laughs) implies also that it lasts, and it doesn't last at all. Like, we're talking about 40, 50 years of, of prosperity, and how long did it take to get to the peak of that? When was the peak of that? How long did those conditions actually last? And, and so it's kind of part of this whole question. And I just think that there's a, a basic division that you can make uh, with the land of Canaan and its smaller material parts at any point in time in history to the major empires that do exist and eventually uh, take over at different times. Um, but, you're, but what your point is, is you're highlighting it's because they don't have port plus hinterland plus all these other things needed to establish this massive civilization. And, and, and that's just as true for Tyre as it is for Damascus, as just as true as it is for Jerusalem or Samaria um, or any of these, Gath, uh, any of these states, they don't have all of these components. And that's why they're, they're susceptible to when the, uh, as uh, my former teacher, Paul Wright, and I think he borrowed it from somebody else, when the cat comes, you know, the mice run away. When the cat's away, the mice can play. Um, you know, and that's what we have mostly in the Iron Age, the, these mice kingdoms, these smaller kingdoms, playing with one another and fighting with one another, another until they can control bigger and bigger pieces of the pot. So with that, let's switch to the archaeology then. Um, in light of this, it works all nice and good geographically, and uh, the we can we can imagine it from a um, a historical perspective and comparison that fits. But archaeologically speaking, uh, is there evidence that there's anything going on in this area in the 10th century? Yeah, good question. And this is this is you know one of the more challenging elements of it, just because of the nature of archaeology and and how we can can date certain things. And so you know. Archaeologically speaking, again, if, if it isn't clear, we're, we're talking about the early Iron Age 2A, uh, basically. So 10th century BC, early Iron Age 2A. And, you know, there are um, the, a really relevant point uh, to this whole discussion is, do we, what chronology do we accept and how do we kind of um, segment the Iron Age? And the traditional one would say, you know, Iron Age 2A went up to the end of Solomon's reign. This was, you know, certainly based to on some archaeological material, but it was also completely tied to the biblical text. And nobody really uh, would argue that this is uh, a division point anymore for the the early Iron Age 2A, either into the later Iron Age 2A, as we've referred to it today, or even the Iron 2B, as it used to be called in previous times. Can I, can, I, can I just but, say something? Yeah. I think what you said is it's such an excellent point that people don't often understand. There's a difference between archaeological periodization and history, as well as what we have in the biblical text. The sub-periods, the divisions that we have, are not always directly tied to uh, dates that we have associated with a particular king. Uh, sometimes it's just subtle changes that we see in the material culture, but sometimes it's a definitive event like the year 701 BC, where we have uh, Sennacherib coming to the land of, of Israel um, and just 
ravaging the kingdom of Judah, and it left not just a historical record of what happened, but it left a definitive mark upon material culture. And so thinking about this from uh, what Kyle was saying in terms of the Iron 2A, um, traditionally it's dated to about 1000 BC because that's about the time David became king. But material culture, from a material culture perspective, there's very little change that we can point to around 1000 BC, uh, or even really trace that much of a change between the transition of the Iron One into the Iron Two. And so this question of how should we date it, it's driven mostly by changes in material culture, not about specific um, narratives that we read. And that's just an important point to realize. And that's why a lot of times biblical scholars and, and archaeologists will feud with one another, but sometimes it's actually uh, just a misunderstanding over what they're actually talking about. It's no problem if David lived in the Iron One. Uh, it, it's no problem. I mean, it's just it's just a matter of how do you date this and how do you fit with the particular uh, sites that are occupied. Um, and so just, I'm not necessarily making a definitive statement about when uh, we should date Iron One and Iron Two. I'm just trying to define uh, how we even think about these sub periods because many people misunderstand that point. Yeah. And, and it is an art, you know, it's something that has, it has evolved and probably again, will continue to evolve. So we can't be too dogmatic about some of these modern archeological terms that we've imposed to help us classify and understand things because yeah, it's not as if Solomon's like, Oh, guess what, everybody, I'm going to build a Megiddo. So call that the iron two a today. I mean, maybe he did, I doubt it, but you know, so yeah, but then tying our archeological divisions and the changes we see in the material culture to specific historical events. Yeah, sometimes, as you mentioned, Chris, it, we can nail it down. We've got these anchor points like Sennacherib's uh, invasion in 701. We used to talk about um, Shishak's campaign around 925, 927, but that has kind of fallen fallen on greater criticism. And I, I don't think most people would accept that that's as strong of an anchor point because there's just a number of variables some of the archaeology that's connected to it just doesn't come from really good context. And so we'll just pull that off. So that means that there's no strong archaeological anchor point or historical event, I should say, that we can pin to the archaeology for this time period. So when we're talking about the Iron Age 2A, really, at this point, we're talking about a period of almost 200 years from, you know, let's say 1000 BC, 980 BC down to at least eight. 5830, some would say even 810, you know, almost down to the end of the ninth century. And so where do you where do you divide that within that? I mean, a 200 year period is a really big chunk of time. And there there is a clear shift somewhere in there between the earlier material and the later material. Ceramic forms change, uh, decoration changes a bit. But how then does that map on stratigraphically and historically. And so this is the process that we're we're still navigating. And this is what I, you know, I was looking in this article at some of the bigger picture things to try and parcel this out because there is this ambiguity and say, okay, is something, you know, is the archaeology of the, the Iron Age 2A in Galilee, are we looking at the early Iron Age 2A, which would, we would say is basically late 10th century or mid to late 10th century. So historically speaking, essentially the days of Solomon, uh, which again raises another issue because we don't know precisely when Solomon reigned. It's you know we're given a rough rough date, or are we looking at the late Iron Age 2A? And sometimes it's not always to divide, not always easy to divide it out. Archaeologists are now doing more radiocarbon analysis to try and narrow this window, and we're we're getting to a point where we can 
clarify to a certain degree, but it's it's still not you know precise as we might like it for tying things to the historical um, narrative. But the bigger picture stuff that I was interested in started you know noticing and what I thought formed a nice pattern is that you look at some of the major sites in the Hula Basin. So you look at the site of Dan, you look at Hutsor, you look even at Tel Kinneret or Tel Kinrot, uh, which is just on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And you see this clear shift at you know, whatever point you want to see it, you see a clear shift from Hutsor Stratum 10-9, which is a kind of only occupies the western half of the Acropolis and it has a casemate wall. You see that expand into Stratum 8 as this, you know, it basically doubles in size, takes up the entire Acropolis, and now the new portion of wall is this massive solid fortification wall. So something has changed. The nature of the settlement, it's it's doubled in size, at least doubled in size, and they're building a stronger wall. Why is that? Okay, so I'll leave you with that. And then we look at, at um, the site of Dan as well. It's one of the largest city gates you will ever encounter in uh, the land of Israel today. And why do they make it so big? Well, let's think about the historical situation of what's going on there. And when did they make it so big? Right? Underneath of this, it seems that you have a smaller structure. And again, this is can be a, a bit debated until some of the final reports are out and maybe they expose a bit more of the stratum 4a uh, material there. But between stratum 4a and 3, uh, or even 4a, 4b and 4a, you know, you, there's a shift in the, the scale of the fortifications there. At the same time, you see these smaller fortresses, what I'll call fortress, uh, smaller kind of casemate structures that are kind of defensible in Upper Galilee, and they exist and then they're, they're gone. So how do these relate to the changes with these other major tell sites that we're looking at? Are they contemporaneous? Are they not? And what I, I looked at is from the big picture, well, what else is going on? We've got the Tyrians or Phoenicians in the northwest. We've got you know Israel, whether we're talking about the the United Monarchy or even the Northern Kingdom of Israel later on. And then we've got the Arameans in Damascus. And from you know what we can tell at this point in the ninth century, Aram Damascus starts to become this dominant power, and it's also at the time that Israel is this kind of you know major player in, in the Northern Kingdom. So what is the border between these two power players going to look like? And we get the picture in the biblical text, which is our only real historical source for you know coming at this, is that it's a back and forth type thing. You know, sometimes around Damascus swoops in, takes over. Sometimes Israel is stronger and swoops out and takes over. So the sites, you know, and this is my assumption, the sites that you're going to find there probably will be fortified because they're border sites, and there's energy put into that. And what you see is that this fits historically and archaeologically, if you, you know, depending again on what kind of um, chronology you accept, with the evolution of Hutsor and Dan and Tel Kinneret and some other sites in the region, is that from the, you know, they start off as smaller sites, then all of a sudden, boom, they become big and well fortified and massive. And when you compare the pottery with those sites across that shift with the pottery from these smaller sites, in Upper Galley, it seems that the sites in Upper Galley are on the earlier end, and the shift that's taking place at these major sites is towards the latter part of the the Iron 2A. And so, historically speaking, I started wondering, well, clearly there's an effort to buffer against Aram Damascus, but what about 
the relationship with Tyre? Well, again, we only have the biblical text to kind of inform us. And this is, you know, we see a shift between perhaps not necessarily animosity between Hiram and Tyre, but, you know, a status quo into the early days of the northern kingdom of Israel, where it seems that Tyre and the northern kingdom are buddy, 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 right? Because Ahab marries Jezebel, you know, Omri is making these connections. And so is this a type of relationship that's going to require a strong border fence, strong border defenses or, or not? And, you know, thinking about the bigger picture, it seems to me that there's a clear shift from concerns with um, a, a neighbor to the northwest as opposed to the northeast in the earlier Iron 2A. When around Damascus, we don't, we, we don't have any clear evidence that it's a real threat at this moment that could change in the future, but we don't have any at the moment. And then there's a shift into the, you know, very late 10th century, early 9th century, when it seems that relations between um, the Northwest and Israel are are quite good, but relations to the Northeast are not so good. And so there's a there's this transition. And I, I, I would argue that I could support all this archaeologically, uh, but that's the bigger picture element there that, that, that I was trying to, to parcel out as well. Yeah, I think I, th I think what you're saying makes makes a lot of sense. Um, maybe just a couple clarifications for our uh, for our listeners. Um, when Kyle's talking about a, a stratum, he means a particular city within a tell. In other words, a tell is a mound of multiple cities built on top of one another. A stratum is a that city a city within that stratum stratigraphy at one point in time. So a stratum is something that can date to a bunch of you know, different periods. Scholars debate as to a particular stratum, if it's earlier or later, and this is part of this whole, this whole question. Now, um, one, one uh, interesting element that I, I think is um, worth considering in this, in this discussion is we have, uh, of course, the Israelites, um, and uh, by this point, uh, do we call them the Northern Kingdom of Israel or the United Kingdom and so on? Um, we have the Tyrians uh, of Tyre, and then Sidon is eventually going to get the upper hand and become the, the main city. So you have those, let's call them Phoenician city-states along the coast. You have, as you described, the Arameans of Damascus, who over the, perhaps the 10th, but certainly by the 9th century, become a major player. Um, and then, but, but, but in this area, you also have other elements, like the Gesherites, like the Amalekites, uh, like the uh, Arameans of, of Tov, uh, like the Arameans that we have in the Baca Valley, which are mentioned uh, at uh, Beit Rehov and, and, and others that are likely not mentioned. Um, and I, I think here again, it's really interesting that in the earlier book or the, the, the stories that we have with David and Solomon is that we have references to the kingdom of Gesher that uh, David marries into, which is well identified to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And so you're already seeing um, these elements of geopolitics that is connected with geography and, and different areas that are part of the, the biblical text scholars have noticed for a long time. And now archaeologically speaking, um, you have excavations like we have at at Tell, um, which is fam in famous or infamous, depending on your uh, viewpoint for the discussion of Bethsaida, which maybe we'll have on a different podcast. Um, 
but that side is undoubtedly the heart of the kingdom of of Gesher, this this Aramean state. And then you also have the excavations that have taken place in the last decade or so uh, at Abel Bet Maka with uh, Nava Panis Cohen, Bob Mullins, and uh, Nama uh, um, that, 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 that have shown that the site was an important Iron One and 10th and, and 9th century. They even have an inscription um, that has a Yahwistic name, uh, which seems to indicate perhaps that the people living there were Israelites. And so this, this is a bigger question that, you know, it's something we've talked about before in the Southern part of the country about ethnicity. How do you connect a Phil- what's a Philistine, a Canaanite, an Israelite, or a Judahite look like? Uh, would they know the difference? <laughs> can, we, can we define it from a, um, a, a, a material culture standpoint? You have those same exact questions on the Northern end of the spectrum as you're bumping up now to uh, these borders where you have again, the Phoenicians and the Arameans of various stripes. And uh, over time, do they become coalesced into something we call Israel? Which way are they being pulled? And, and again, this is where it, I, I think it becomes a very interesting question. And the other thing I wanted to say is we have, even in the Bible, which is long and includes lots of stories, but we just have a fraction of what actually went on. Uh, and I'm, I'm constantly reminded of this uh, when we think about the stories of remote Gilead uh, between the Israelites and the Arameans. Uh, at the beginning of the story, which is between Ahab and uh, when, when Jehoshaphat goes to visit Ahab in Samaria, uh, Ahab says, don't you know that remote Gilead is ours? It's been there for all these years. And won't you go with me and fight it to defeat the Arameans? Uh, and they go and fight. And we, we kind of all know the story. Ahab dies. They lose the battle. Presumably don't conquer remote Gilead. Ahab goes back to Samaria. His blood is licked up by dogs and uh, prostitutes bathing in his chariot and all this. But they lost the battle. But the next time we read about remote Gilead, they've won a battle that's not mentioned. And they're now defending it against the Arameans who are coming to defeat the side. Like, so we, we don't even have the middle of that story. You know, it's kind of like... Uh, Paul referencing a letter between first and second Corinthians that he sent them that we, that we just don't have. So there's so much in these smaller areas along these seams that's just this back and forth. And we know kind of like the bigger players, the Arameans, the Phoenicians and the Israelites, but there's others, there's others around here and which way they're going to be pulled and which way are you going to be able to establish and maintain these strategic strongholds. And it's, it's both knowing, as you said, um, you talked about how um, uh, Jim Monson talked about, you know, where should you go and why and where wouldn't you go? Uh, it's also kind of knowing like, what are the sources actually tell us, knowing those sources and what they tell us, but also what could have happened that we just don't know about. Um, and it's, it's kind of putting both the geographical as well as the uh, knowledge of the historical sources with the archaeology that it never is going to allow us to get to exhaustive knowledge but knowing, you know, kind of all the variables involved, I think is one, it's interesting, but it also shows you, I think, a better result from a, from a um, try, trying to re- reconstruct all this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I, you know, I think that's a great, um, a great statement there at the end too. It is really this layered approach that, you know, 
again, uh, you know, for me at least, Jim Monson taught that to John Monson, John Monson taught that to me, and it's, it's you know, we start with the literally the foundations, the, the bedrock, the, the, the geology, and build up and layer on trade, politics, the archaeology, the textual sources, ancient research sources, and, you know, you're not focusing just on one thing, but when you allow these different kind of layers of the, the cake or, you know, layers of the onion to interact, then I think you're able to come to, um, you know, see some bigger picture things that that open up new new ways of seeing one specific layer within that. That's good. Yeah. So in conclusion, in conclusion, why was Hiram not so happy? Why does he call it Kabul? Uh, if you could just summarize your uh, kind of what is said and then what your conclusions are about this uh, about this topic yeah so the short of it is that i i argue and, and others have kind of argued it and um not necessarily as explicit ways um that the southwestern region of galilee this alonim hills area is the region of kabul being referred to in the text and ultimately what hiram is displeased about is that he wants good agricultural land um, in his trade with Solomon because he's giving him all these high-quality goods. But what Solomon gives him is pretty much the worst possible land in Galilee that's available. So you've got you know, swampy southern Akko shore. You've got the Alunum Hills, which are um, and one of the poorer limestones. They're covered with trees. You don't have access to any good open valleys. And so Solomon, in, in some regards, is very wise in a Near Eastern perceptions that he basically gives Hiram something without really giving him anything at all. So he's proven to be wise. He got the better of old Hiram. And Hiram, you know, through diplomatic things, has to complain about it silently, but then try to out, outwit and outdo Solomon later on. And you see this captured in the language of, you know, why did you do this, my brother? What is this? And this is good, you know, Amarna letters language between, you know, leaders. And, you know, oh, you're my brother. Why are you doing this? My oh, but, you know, or, you know, I'm your father, if you're, you consider yourself to be a, of a higher level. So Hiram is clearly just disappointed, uh, well, angry, let's shall we say, with what the one that Solomon has pulled over him because he hasn't gotten any good agricultural land, what he's, which is what he's really after, and which would allow him to have you know, the upper hand again because not only then would he have control over some of the access, you know, sea trade of bringing in exotic things, but then he would also have the kind of bargaining chip, so to speak, that Solomon has, which is access to the agricultural land. And so it would put Solomon in a really weak situation were he to give any good land to Hiram, and he knows this. And it drives, you know, it, it creates this um, this trade. And then in the archaeology, again, to come back to where these, these smaller kind of fortified sites are, they're all on strategic ridges or in locations that give you this great view to the northwest. So if they are military settlements of any kind, they're going to provide someone to the southeast that added strategic defensive you know, benefit, whereas someone from the northwest, i.e. Tyre, you wouldn't have that because the, the mountains continue to rise up to the south and to the east of, of most of these sites. So they, they don't have the same strategic value the other way around, so to speak. So essentially, it was good for nothing. This this uh, this territory, exactly. which is what it means, which is which is what it means. And you know, and there's a whole bunch of debate about what Kabul means. And I you know have a pretty lengthy footnote in there that weighs the different the different possible etymologies. And in the end, 
I don't think we can necessarily say what the real etymology, but when you look at all the potential etymologies, they're all, you know, this is a terrible land. It's a mountainous land. It's a border region. This is, you know, they, they're all actually kind of connected and they all fit largely this region of the Alunim Hills in southwestern Galilee. So no matter what way we look at it, whether we're looking at the Hebrew sources or whether we're looking at the Septuagint, which seems to translate it a different way, they all point, in my mind, to this, this one region that when we layer on the geology and the economy, just kind of pulls together. And just just one other thing to that, it's still called that today, or at least a town in the region retains that name, which is interesting too, if it does mean good for nothing. Um, they there's kind of a remembrance there that they're that you're living in good for nothing town, um, and it's uh, it's just funny the way that that name could live on, and maybe they didn't think about that anymore, but it just continues in the in the Arabic. So maybe what you're saying is is that as we as we wrap this up, that Solomon this is just another example of how wise Solomon is, and we can compare him to such figures as Abraham and Lot. You know, when they're choosing which land, you know, you can choose the land and I'll take, I'll keep whatever is left. Or we can think of the patriarchs, Isaac and, and Abraham with Avimelech, king of Gerar and these land right issues. And, uh, and, and it's seeing him in that role of the clever wisdom that is so often expressed in the Bible. And when you were just describing that, if we're thinking about this on the larger literary level where David is, I'm not going to say David's not wise, but David is characterized as a man of blood. You know, he's a, a man of action and a man of war. Um, and not to say that he maybe didn't have these types of things that aren't recorded, but the Bible wants to, to, to convey to us that Solomon, by his very name, is a man of peace. How do you make peace? Well, David made it peace through war. Solomon, by his namesake, Shalom, Shlomo, is going to make peace through agreements and through wealth and prestige and power. And so from the literary side, it's, uh, it's, it fits in very nicely with that component. But as you've demonstrated, it can both be literary and also have a historical background to it. And that's often the case um, in the Hebrew Bible, and particularly in the uh, the times of the kings, it's not one or the other. It can often often be where we can trace both of these features. And my last comment is, if King Solomon was in my fantasy football league, I'm going, and he's going to offer me a trade, I'm going to pay care. I'm just going to decline it immediately. Uh, probably the, a good idea, yeah. yeah. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trust him. He's, he, he would probably, you know, dominate that league year after year. So. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to looking for newbies who he's going to try and, uh, you know, somebody has got an ACL torn. That's you know, just a, not, 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 not announced yet. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, this was, this was fun. Um, I think we've also thought of some future episodes, um, maybe thinking about some of these regions and Bethsaida and other things that we'll talk about in the future. Uh, but until next time, it's been fun and we'll catch you, uh, on a new episode coming up soon. Um, associated with geography and other things. So, Kyle, thanks for coming on, and, and I always enjoy our, our, uh, our, our episodes together and uh, look forward to the next one. Thanks, Chris. Yep, great time. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>